Hey, it's Alexander Jay back with the NBA Recap Show on the Mojo Sports Network. We've got about a week and a half left until we've got the real season. So I'm joined today by Tom Dev out of Melbourne, Yuri Bilsic in Perth, looking at six key teams that we want to examine the over-unders at. But before we get there, we'll just touch on what's happened this week in the NBA. Tom, how are you today? Yeah, no, not too bad. Just, you know, this week and a half can't go fast enough. You, I'm guessing you're the same. You just can't wait for basketball to be back. We kind of got preseason basketball, but it's not the same. Likewise too, Alex, and sort of just eager, raring to go and waiting for the last remaining few days of preseason to conclude, which I think is next Saturday by memory, and then we're back into it, right? It goes quick from the last game of the NBA Finals in mid-June to three, of course, July, August, September. Yeah, almost a 12-month of... sport. It's almost it it's, it's like a 10-and-a-half-month sport, and we have like six weeks of nothing. Um, but, yeah, getting really keen to get back into watching six games of basketball a day. Today in our over-unders predictions, we're going to talk about the Celtics, the Bucks, the Raptors, the Heat, the Timberwolves, and then the Grizzlies. And I've got a really hot take with the Grizzlies. I think there might be a couple of hot takes coming in those other teams as well. But Yuri, we'll start with you. Uh, a couple of things that have caught your eye in the news this week, including former ESPN color commentator and a, a former coach, Jeff Van Gundy, being appointed to the Celtics squad as a senior consultant. We'll start with you, Yuri, and then Tom, tell us how you feel. Oh, I definitely think it's a great move for the Celtics organization, Alex, for what they want to build in terms of further defensive principles. And they're already a solid defensive team as it is before Van Gundy was, of course, appointed as one of the Celtics consultants. And when you have to look at Van Gundy's pedigree right as coach from the New York Knicks when he took over from Pat Riley and leading them to the NBA Finals as the number eight seed back in 1999, and now as his number one calling card was all-out relentless defense. He would play guys, Charlie Ward, Alan Houston, who – made significant defensive improvements under Van Gundy and they were sort of talked about too during Allen's tenure as a New York Nick under Jeff Van Gundy. Latrell Spreewell fitted that mould perfectly to a tee because Spree was already well known as a defensive stud in the way. Patrick Ewing, Kirk Thomas, Marcus Camby can name a list of other guys that really played dogged and played hard for Van Gundy. And when you look at the time right where the NBA in the 90s and early 2000s was all about limiting, well, trying to at least eliminate opponents under 100 points. Van Gundy is one of the very few coaches that had such an outstanding success rate of holding opponents under 100 points, Alex. And this goes, I think, back to the 2000-2001 season, which the Knicks, of course, finished number four seed. They won 48 games. But there was a period there that Van Gundy's Knicks held teams under 100 points on 33 different, on 33 straight games. That's a phenomenal achievement, right? And in today's league, that barely happens, if not at all. It doesn't, yeah, just, it doesn't happen. Yeah, just because, just because of how the defensive schemes have changed and we can name a commissioner there that really wants to emphasize more offense and defense as the years went by, especially what with the Spurs and Pistons in 2005, which was an absolute attrition of battle of defenses, right, where teams were barely scoring over 75 to 80 points to win games. But going back to what I think it's going to really help with the Celtics too is that I think the biggest part for them is just having that extra voice there to help Joe Missoula because Missoula's a very good offensive coach in a way too. But just ha- having that extra layer there to really complement, I think, and that's the biggest part too because that was a real disappointment, right, with Van Gundy being ousted from ESPN because he brought a different perspective to the game. He just told it as it is. 
And that's something which I think some the Celtics people might need that too. The Celtics yeah. might need that voice to tell it how it is. Tom, um, our Celtics quote unquote expert. I'll, I'll unquote that. You're our Celtics expert. Um, how do you feel about second row Joe getting that extra help in the coaching slash consulting lineup? Yeah, I mean, look, we'll have to see. I mean, we don't actually know exactly what you know the role will be and how involved he'll be with the team. I doubt he's actually going to be on the bench, and that was probably Joe Mazzulla's biggest issue. His game-to-game adjustments in the playoffs are actually quite good. It was his in-game adjustments that needed a lot of work. But look, the Celtics have gone out this offseason. They've gotten Charles Lee and Sam Cassell alongside him on that bench as assistant coaches. They've built this roster to his liking. There's three-point shooters everywhere. Joe Mazzulla's got everything he needed this year. So put it this way, if he doesn't have a great season as coach, maybe he's just not built for it. But we'll see. But I like it. I mean, anytime you get an experienced coach to help out in any kind of way, it's, it's a benefit. I mean, I can't really see a downside to it. Uh, next on our news recap, Victor Wembanyama lighting it up everywhere in preseason games. Um, if you're listening to the show, I'm guessing you've seen the Wemby highlights. Just pause the show and watch them again. They're so fun, aren't they? They're just incredible. Um, prior to preseason, Wemby was 30 to 1 odds to win Defensive Player of the Year. I'm not sure if he still is because I saw that impact is crazy. It's just preseason. Uh, Tom, we'll start with you this time. Any thoughts on the Spurs playing Wemby and how great that defense was one, but also he's doing things on offense I've literally never seen before. It's, you know, the, the hype is real so far. That's that's probably the best thing coming out of it. I mean, it's been a long time since we've seen a number one overall pick sort of come in and, and, and sort of really live up to the hype at this level. I mean, Bancaro was good last year, but we weren't really expecting Bancaro to be this sort of level. I mean, we expected it from Zion. He didn't live up to it. Expected it from Ben Simmons, he didn't live up to it. Um, expected it from Mark Elfultz, he didn't live up to it. So hopefully this is finally the number one overall pick who lives up to the hype and continues on this progression. And I mean, it's two games in and you already can see he's probably going to be a top 30 player this year. Um, his length is just insane. The way that he can just sort of reach out and grab the ball from any position is just going to be so hard to get by. And his presence in the paint, I mean, he's never really out of it. And I saw one bit where I can't remember who, but someone sort of stole the ball or they gave it away on offense um, in the backcourt and they went at uh, the rim and the guy was so afraid to go up because Wembenyama was just standing there. Yeah. And that's the impact he's going to have and it's just going to be crazy to see his progression throughout the season but throughout his whole career. Yuri, I didn't ask you to prepare for this one, but Blake Griffin was the first rookie to be named to an all-star team back in 2009-ish. Maybe I've got the year wrong. Yeah, 2011, I think, because yeah. he missed his first year of, I think, torn ACL. If That's I'm correct. Not mistaken. Yeah. Do you reckon Wemby's got a chance this year to win Rookie of the Year? No, no. To make an oh, All Star, uh, yeah, All Star team. Oh, definitely right, Alex. If the Spurs can be at least an even 500 record, perhaps near the All Star break, and sort of fighting for a playing spot, then can't see why not. Because the biggest part too with the Spurs, right, is that they've already got those other pieces which are gradually building into their careers, like Trey Jones. Like, can't wait to see more of him and Wemby's combination too because there was that ridiculous pass which Trey set up for Wemby and he spoke about it too. He basically just said, just throw it to the sky and allow Wemby to do the rest. <laughs> and it's simple as that, right? When you've got a point guard such as Trey Jones who, like his brother Tice, rarely turns the ball over, finds the right people in the right spots, it makes Wemby and Yama's life so much easier. We saw a few times with... I think some of the pick and pops from three, which Wemby, I think was only one of five from distance. And those are ones, depending on how many threes he does take this season, well, that's still to be known. But the other part, which is really 
effective in the ways that other pick and pop from pro 15 to 20 feet out. And that's where you just go and nail it every single time. And Dewey's jump shot reminds me a little bit of Alex. What's that? Brooke Lopez barely has to get off the ground, just uses his feet, and that's it. And the ball just goes through the hoop. Yeah, watching him shoot is crazy. Um, he had a highlight where he, anyone else, it's like a hook shot, and he dunked it over uh, maybe Thomas Bryan we were talking yeah. about. It was the most impressive thing I've seen since Jimmy Butler took over in the finals last year. Um, Yuri, we'll stay with you just quickly. James Harden said his relationship with 76ers general manager Daryl Morey is beyond repair. Do we have any new thoughts on this Sixers thing? Because uh, he hasn't suited up for a preseason game yet. If he does, I'll be very surprised. But he's still with the team, am I right? Oh, that's absolutely correct, Alex. And it's not his teammates nor Coach Nick Nurse, Nurse, shall I say. He was raving of Coach Nurse's different offensive schemes that he's going to bring to the team. And that's why he's really excited. And he talked about it only a couple of days ago. It's just more in the fact that he didn't mention Daryl Morey by his name. He just basically mentioned him, mentioned him by front office. So he really has nothing to do with it whatsoever. And I don't think it's sort of the same thing is what happened probably in Houston as well with some of his teammates too. It was just more, in fact, the front office in a way that probably didn't quite, you could say, accommodate in some term to what Harden was looking for. But considering during Harden's tenure, right, for a decade in Houston, which he absolutely gave his all, let, almost led the team to the 2018 NBA Finals. If Chris Paul doesn't do his hamstring right in, what, game six against Golden State, they'll be playing Cleveland in the finals. And think most likely they would win that yeah. NBA yeah. finals, you think, and win the championship for the first time since 1995. But that's a sort of what if at the time. But this is the other part too as well is that he has come to training camp. He has looked really in tip-top shape, unlike what happened in Houston a couple of years ago where he looked like Santa Claus in a way, didn't he? And only played, what, the first 13 games. I think Houston were five and eight and – Harden made those comments after the loss to the LA Lakers on Jan 13 and that was basically the straw that broke the camel's back and we saw the next day that he was traded to the Brooklyn Nets as part of what that 3-14 deal at the time which of course cost the Nets Jared Allen, Karis LeVert along the way about three or four future first round picks but I think in the way too is that his age at this point as well probably does stand against him, unfortunately. Alex being just turning 34 on August 26, and sort of people have talked about whether he has, of course, lost some of his step. Now. We saw that, of course, during the playoffs as well, which he actually cooked up Boston in game one for 45 points, and game four he hit that go-ahead three as well, which I think Jalen Brown spoke about at the time too which he said, I shouldn't have double-teamed Embiid. I should have stayed on Harden, who was on the left baseline corner, which Embiid fed out to him. So- You've sent Tom into a spiral. I'm just watching Tom. He's muted himself, and he's got darkness behind his eyes, just thinking about that missed rotation. But continue on, Yuri. So that's the big part too, Alex. And I think he'll he'll still suit up for the 76ers. And as said at the start, is it's not his teammates. It's not the new coaching staff that's there. It's just the front office. And that's the big thing apart. If it was his teammates as well, that would be a living nightmare whatsoever, yeah. but it's not. It's just one faction. The other parts don't bother him whatsoever. And even his teammates, Joe, I think Embiid and PJ Tucker were pretty – and Tobias Harris too were basically saying nothing but positive things about him. So I think in a way if he's just able to just at least take away from that internal sort of 
not conflict, but it's more that division between him and the front office and be able to focus and play on basketball and at least get Philly to 50 wins once more because they've got the good luck capabilities to do that whatsoever. Tom, I don't know if you've got any more thoughts on Harden or you want to talk about ESPN ranking the top 100 players the wrong way again. Uh, look, just quickly on Harden, uh, the Celtics have played the Sixers twice this preseason, so I've watched both of those. They need to get Harden off the team because they need to give the keys to Maxi. Absolutely. Because- I'm so glad you said that. Oh, he's just, he's lightning fast. I mean, we had White and Holiday as our defensive guards and they were struggling. He was just zipping up and down the court. Harden's not going to play like that. Harden's going to get the ball and he's going to dribble it for what, 16 out of the 24 seconds on the shot clock. Let's just get him out. It's not going to work. He's on an expiring deal. So you either lose him for nothing in the end of the season or, you know, you just waste away an asset. So just get rid of him. Get in what Terrence Mann from the Clippers because let's be real, no one else is going to want him. And roll out with that. I think that's going to be better. I mean, they can't keep wasting Embiid's time. And give the keys to Maxi. I actually think Maxi's going to have a really good year. And he was having a good year last year before he got injured. So, Yuri, 10 seconds on Harden. Definitely don't believe the Clippers aren't going to give up Terrence Mann. They should, but they won't. No. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Uh, ESPN, again, ranked the top 100 uh, players ahead of every season like they do. And this year, they got it wrong again. Number one being Giannis and not the NBA champion, Nikola Jokic. Um, fellas, I'll read out the top 10s from 10 down to one, and you tell me if you disagree with anything here. Anthony Davis at 10, LeBron at nine, SJ at eight, KD seven, Tatum six, the top five rounds out with Curry, then Luka, Joel Embiid, Jokic, and Giannis, the top three bigs, all international players. Any glaring omissions or something there you don't agree with, Tom? Um, I will point out, I don't see the guy who came sixth in MVP voting, Donovan Mitchell, but I think that's right. Yeah, no, I think most of that's not too bad. I would have had Jokic at one over Giannis. I think the general consensus is normally the best player. The player who won finals MVP is normally the best player the next year. Um, I personally wouldn't have Joel Embiid as the third best. I think Luka, Curry, Tatum, and Durant better than, than Embiid. Just purely based off playoff and you history. You are a hater. I, I'm a hater, but that, name me one iconic Joel and B playoff moment. I mean, I will, but he was on the losing end of it. It was <laughs> this when Kawhi Leonard hit the three over him that bounced six times off the rim before exactly. I went to win, exactly. So. If, if that doesn't sum up Joel and B's career, nothing does. So I, I wouldn't have him third. Um, and I don't know, SGA might be a bit high. And LeBron, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. He's always going to be number in the 10. Like, it doesn't matter what he does. He's always going to be in the 10. ESPN, just love him. Davis over Booker, very questionable. And yeah. Anthony Edwards at 13. I think that's a bit of a bit of a reach. I mean, he's had one decent season and a good postseason game, but he did lose in the first round. I mean, let's just halt the brakes and wait to see what he actually does this season before we rate him that highly. You any thoughts there? Oh, John Moran dropping from number nine at the start of last season to number 35 and Kyrie Irving down to number 34. Westbrook at 94. I'm completely fine one. with all of those. You tell me and why Mikhail, you shouldn't be. But. And Mikhail Bridges, I think, was higher than Irving and Moran's pretty sure too. And sort of Kyrie on his Instagram account didn't take too kindly to it. So that was not surprising one bit. I honestly think Luca at four is a bit high for me. Um, you've got Curry and Tatum right behind him. Um, you can make the argument. I also thought, honestly, SGA at eight, way too low. I thought SGA ahead of KD, who's been injury-plagued the last couple of years, is an argument. Um, 
but I was surprised to see AD in the top 10 as well. All right, moving on to our over-under segment. Uh, 16s, we'll start with the Celtics, and then Yuri, you can go to the Bucks, and then I'll take care of the Raptors. This year, the Celtics are slated. I had them at Sportsbet in Australia at 54.5 wins over-under. I'm not sure if that's what you prepped for, Tom. Take us through if you think the team will make that, because 54.5 wins is a lot, but uh, Celtics team probably got marginally better this offseason. Yeah, so look, I'll, I'll make the case for them before I give my prediction. But look, so their, their top six is Tatum, Brown, Holiday, Porzingis, White, Horford. Um, and then after that, the depth is it's a cliff, the, the jump and the, the gap. We, we went over this last week. I mean, Peyton Pritchard, though, killing it this preseason. Uh, whether that's going to absolutely regular season, who knows? I mean, as good as he is in this, one thing that's not really a focus in preseason is defense. Pritchard gets hunted on the defensive end. I mean, game... Two against Miami, he came out and got absolutely hunted and was played off the court. So that'll be interesting. Um, look, they've basically got three guards. They've got two, you know, wings and they've got two bigs that they're going to really want to play. Outside of that, it's a lottery shoot who's going to get those next minutes. And that's going to be the concern. There's been some promising signs in this preseason. Um, Mikhayak's been killing his threes. Um, Hauser had a bit of a bounce back game. We'll see. Lamar Stevens has been good on the defensive end. But again, preseason could mean anything. Um, Tatum, assuming he just keeps playing at the same level, he's going to be obviously the number one option. and He's going to be integral to this team. But what's going to be more important is his minutes off the court. You know, Missoula liked to make him the first sub last year and he'd often come out of the game with the team up five to nine points in the first quarter. And then by the time he came back in, they'd be down by one to six points. And it's why he had one of the highest plus minuses in the league last year. Um, and look, some are predicting Tatum to win a, an MVP. Even our own uh, Jack Brophy predicted that on his podcast. Um, I'm not 100% sure if that's going to happen now that they've traded in Holiday because Tatum's probably not going to have much ball handling duties because he's going to be behind Holiday and White, you'd think. But look, last season he did average 30.1 points per game, 8.8 rebounds, 4.6 assists. I hope we see those numbers increase again, especially that assist number. Probably if he's going to get an MVP, he's probably going to need to get that assist number to six or seven. Um, And look, his running mate, Jalen Brown, this is going to be a test of how mentally tough he is. You know, all the criticism was on him after that game seven against the Heat. Can he now dribble with his left hand? Who knows? A team's now going to look to target that and force him left. And his offensive touches will probably go down now that there are two like two new teammates that are probably going to look for um, to score for themselves. And that brings me to what is pausing is going to look like. I mean, he's looked really good in the two preseason games he's played in. He's been a threat from everywhere, from you know a lob threat to the three, to the mid-range, to the post-game. So if he can bring that and implement it and complement the other two big guys, that's going to be great. And his defense looked good compared to what it has been. Um, I think he's going to slot straight into that Rob Williams role and play more off-ball D, be that for sort of free safety. Uh, and look, Holiday, he's going to be... Uh, the primary playmaker. He's going to go from the number two guy on offense last year for the Bucks to probably the number four guy on the Celtics team. So that's going to be a huge jump. He averaged 7.4 assists per game last year. Need to jump that up to about eight, nine, if he's really going to run this offense. And then Horford and White, they're probably going to be the primary three and D guys. Both will want to shoot around the 40% mark from three. Whether or not they can do it, I don't know. They're, you know, they're two elite defensive players though. So It'll be great. And then with White and Holiday, your defensive, your perimeter around the defense should be great. Taylor and Brown both should look to score 20 a night. While Porzingis, as long as he can integrate himself, I have faith he's going to be quite handy. Um, we'll see if Pritchard can keep up that preseason form. 
like most teams, injuries are going to be the key. If the Celtics can stay healthy, I can see them hitting this over. But they had such bad injury luck, and they always seem to be missing at least one starter for most games. But compared to last season's Porzingis, probably the only real injury-prone player. Their three-point reliance again this year will be an issue, but all six of their top players can shoot the three, unlike last mm-hmm. year. So we'll see. But look, it's like always. And as Yuri was saying before with the Harden, you know, game one where he scored 45, whatever it was, and the game four when he hit that three, the best team to stop the Celtics are the Celtics. <laughs> They've constantly gotten in their own way and they seem to make things hard on themselves. And I, I, I fully predict they'll have they'll go into this postseason and they'll have two or three seven-game series when they really should have cleaned it up in five. But look, at the moment, if they stay healthy, which is a big if, I'm going to have them with the over on the 40, uh, 44.5 wins. Um, the 54.5 wins. That's what they had last year as well. So the over under last year, 54.5. They had 57 last year. I think it's a pretty good line. Um, gun in my head, I'd probably pick the over. I don't know if Yuri came prepared. Yuri, uh, have you got a, a prediction here for the Celtics? Yeah, I agree too, Alex. I think they'll probably win around that mark, 53 to 54. And considering they've done it, well, last season, 2017-18, and that I think 2018-19, they just won under 50 games too. I think they won 49, 48 by memory. They finished yeah. as the number four seed that year and number three seed the following year. And Oh, number seven, of course. They, that was a 72-game season, which they went exactly in even 500. And then, of course, when they made the NBA finals, they finished as, what, the number two seed out of the back of my head as well. And yeah. they ended up winning about 54 games, 55. Yeah, you well think about memory. it. 54, sorry, 57 wins last year. They had a first-year head coach. So, you know, you think maybe we can increase with more experience. The team got better and released some clog in the paint by getting Porzingis who can stretch. So um, not every team in the East got better. At the top end, we've got Philly still and the Bucks. But, yeah, I can see the over. Um, Yuri, you're our Bucks man. They also have a line that was the exact same last year, 53.5. And the Bucks, of course, ended up being first in the East with 58 wins. Um, talk us through that line. How do you feel? Yeah, I feel pretty comfortable with that 53 and a half. I think Alex too. And of course, I think the last couple of seasons, especially in that 2021-22 campaign, which they started off a little bit slow in the way. They were 28 and 19 at one stage. So they're only five games over 500. Then they began to find their mojo after the All-Star break and ultimately won 51 games and I think got the number three seed in the Eastern Conference as well because they lost, I think they, well, could say deliberately lost to the Cavaliers, which probably ultimately costed the Bucks in the end, of course, with having home court advantage in the conference semifinals against the Celtics. And I think the big part too as well this season is, yes, of course, losing Drew Holiday, but bringing in Damian Lillard. And that's the big part as well when it comes down to crunch time situations. And we're going to see a ton of it because Giannis at most times where he went one-on-one and the isolation in terms of the offense went extremely stagnant to the point where he couldn't get that off-ball and on-ball movement with Chris Middleton when he came back into the team, of course, through that wrist surgery and battling with other injuries here and there. And that's the big part too, I think, as well for the Bucks this season is health in a way because we saw a couple of years ago, Brooke Lopez, when he went down with that back injury after the opening game against the Brooklyn Nets to start the season. And he only came back, what, I think it was mid-March against the Utah Jazz and Bobby Portis filled in his spot stupendously well. And I think that's the big part too with the Bucks is the depth. They can cover for 
those losses of, say, if Chris is injured again and has to miss, who knows, maybe like, say, two, three weeks with, I know, hamstring injury, just as a sort of a hypothetical in a way. But we can have that luxury of playing sort of big ball, if you want to use it that way, by playing Giannis at three and Portis at four and Lopez at five if we want. And I think the biggest part as well to Alex during this preseason, the couple of games which the Bucks have played already against Chicago and Memphis, is that Malik Beasley has started at shooting guard. And whether Coach Adrian Griffin does opt to keeping us the starter this season, that's going to be the real, I think, interesting part I think within this whole Bucks starting puzzle because so look at this way Pat Connaughton could easily start as well he's also another excellent defensive glue and also a tremendous rebounder for his position at the guard spot at shooting guard he he can easily grab seven eight nine rebounds as well Alex so I think most people would be surprised at Pat's rebounding ability but he helps so much for why the Bucks have been a top two top three rebounding team in four of the last five seasons. I think they finished number one overall in rebounding last season, just ahead of the Memphis Grizzlies. So that's going to be the other interesting dynamic point. And the other part too as well, Jay Crowder and how often he's going to sort of feature in. I think he's going to feature pretty predominantly well this season because I think within his probably, I think the role that he probably took upon, he wasn't too sure because there was probably just that little bit of sort of uncertainty with him and Coach Mark Budenholz on how many minutes he would play when he did sign with the Bucks, of course, after having to wait those months and hoping to, you know, ultimately fulfill his wish of getting to the destination that he wanted to. So that's the other part to it as well. And I think getting campaign, that's also another good acquisition too. He can also yeah. push the push the ball up the floor as well and when we want to try and play a bit up-tempo too because normally sometimes the Bucks do tend to play at a slow pace at times, but unless, of course, that's Giannis grabbing the ball and herring down from transition. It is a bit of a paradox. You're, you're completely right. Giannis can go at breakneck speed and then sometimes they bog down and the offense gets stagnated, which you hope the, the Damian Lillard acquisition fixes that. Um, I did have a point I was going to get to is that this is a team we've talked about that skews old and, you know, I've gone to my head. I think I'd pick the under because I can see a lot of that rest coming in. This is a team that's won a championship already, doesn't necessarily need to push the envelope. Giannis is coming off. Uh, did he have minor knee surgery in the offseason, if I remembering that right? Yeah, yeah, just a minor um, cleanup. So I do think this is a team that might be conservative with some of their rest management as everyone skews older. I know you're going to bang the over, but I'd be interested in, in Tom's thoughts because he's more <laughs> uh, unbiased than you might be. No, look. I think just having Giannis in itself is going to make them hit the over here. Okay. Again, like the Celtics, I think it's if they're healthy. It, it's If they lose either one of Lillard or Giannis, suddenly they're relying heavily on Chris Middleton to step up. And, you know, unfortunately, because of injuries, I don't know if he's actually capable of doing that anymore. But I, I think this team's just as good as the Celtics, but they've got the best player. And with Giannis... I'm never going to go against Giannis. So it's just a fact. I mean, even in that Heat series when the Heat were up 3-1, I was still kind of thinking if Giannis can get back, they might still pull this off. The only issue is seedings clearly don't matter to them because, I mean, you know, like Yuri said, they they lost that game to the Cavs at the end of uh, two years ago and lost that home uh, court advantage against the Celtics. Last year, they put an emphasis on seeding. They got the number one seed, didn't make it out of the first round. So who knows? But for the moment, I'm hitting the over. Okay, uh, anything left there, Yuri, or do you want to move on to the Raptors? 
Yeah, I'm pretty reasonably happy with the win-loss. If we get to 52, 53 wins this season, that's more than can't enough, complain, I think. Right? Yeah. To, no, you can't complain because who knows this season, right, with how the Eastern Conference is going to shape our in terms of teams' win-loss records because there were four teams in the Eastern Conference that won 50 or more games compared to in the West with Denver Memphis winning 50 or more games. And that's normally vice versa. That's normally six teams in the West winning 50 or more and then only say, two teams in the Eastern Conference winning 50 or more games. So the script has flipped a little bit, but that depends, of course, what happens with the Western Conference this season because it's probably more stacked than what it has been since probably, what, 2013-14 with the standings. Yeah, it's been crazy. All right, um, the Raptors is an interesting one for me, and I'm only half qualified to talk about this. The The Raptors have got a new head coach, uh, Darko Rajakovic. I hope I'm saying that last name right because it's still I, – I've got no idea how to say Rajakovic. This is a team that last year when I prepped for our uh, for my own season previews, I came across a stat and I couldn't find it again today, so it's probably not 100% accurate. This was a team that had beaten the over at the start of every predicted season nine out of 11 times prior to the COVID year in Tampa, so criminally underrated because they tucked away in Canada and the American media just doesn't really look at them. That year in Tampa, they only won 27 games during the COVID. They relocated to Florida. The year after, they were predicted to win 35 and a half games in the 21-22 season, and they win 48. And then last year, predicted to win 46, and they went 41 and 41. They had a, a good little stretch at home down the road. This is a team that's lost Fred Van Vliet over the offseason. Um, great Toronto Raptor. A lot of Raptors fans are not sad that he's gone for the amount of money he signed for. Um, we did gain back Jakob Pertl at the end of last year and went on quite a good win run with him paired with Fenfleet and Pascal and OG. Um, and we picked up some interesting rookies that I'll be uh, – I, I want to watch Grady Dick. I mean, a 6'8 guard who can theoretically shoot the three. Fun. We also had a guy who was a standout in the G League – no, in the Summer League, excuse me, Javon Freeman Liberty is a forward. Uh, he was pretty good in there as well. So this is a team where the predicted over-under for the Raptors this year, 36 and a half. And I think that's more than reasonable to bet the over there. Uh, based on quality of the players still there. So you look at Pascal Siakam, 24 points a game, eight rebounds, six assists, a steal per game. OG Ananobi, good for 17 points, five rebounds. He'll have more time with the ball now. Scotty Barnes in his second year last year was 15 points, six rebounds, five assists. And I think Darko's talked about giving him the ball a bit more in certain lineups to explore quite a lengthy guard. Um Gary Trent Jr. was 17 points a game last year, and I completely forgot about that until I was doing my prep. So this is a team that's got scoring prowess with Jakob Pertl at the end of last year. Looked pretty good in stretches. So I thought, okay, uh, a 500 team at best, 500 is like five games higher than this over-under prediction. So um, I'd be pretty happy with the 36.5 line, but I don't know how you guys feel. Again, I might be a little bit a little bit biased. This is a team that usually overperforms. Um, i got nothing else to say. I think they'll win more than 36 games, Alex. There's something about it. And even like what well, back to the 2013-14 season with the Raptors, right, when I think it was Dwayne Casey's second or third season out of the top of my head and they had that really rough start to the season. And I think they were 6-12 and 12 at one point on December yeah. 6th and they made that trade, traded away. I'm just trying to think out of the top of my head. So they traded away Grievous Vasquez to the Sacramento Kings and they – Got back John Salmons, who was a big part as well, the Toronto Raptors, especially on the defensive end of the floor. And they went on that incredible run. They won, what, 48 games that year and finished just the East number three seed as well, which I think was their highest seeding at the time since 2007 at that point as well. So I think there's something similar 
with this team. Don't know why, Alex. A lot of teams have difficulty traveling to Toronto too. We all know, uh, maybe we don't all know, but Toronto, a great multicultural melting pot, great cities, great women, uh, a lot of distractions there for players. Tom, <laughs> thoughts? Um, on the Raptors or the women in Toronto? <laughs> the Raptors. <laughs> Um, no, look, I, I honestly reckon I'm, I'll, I'll hit the under on this one purely because I think this is just the year where they just go, you know what, let's blow it up. Yeah. And looking at their contracts, they have some really trade-friendly contracts. I mean, Siakam's 37 mil, but for a start, teams will be willing to match match that with other contracts and get him out. Um, OG Adenobi's got the player option after this season. He's at 18 mil. He probably won't pick up that player option. So whether the Raptors preempt him not coming back, we'll see. Gary Trent Jr., 18.5 mil. Dennis Schroeder, even though they just got him, 12, 12.4 mil, only one more year after this year. Very trade-friendly. Uh, besides Scotty Barnes and Grady Dick, I can't really see anyone on this roster that you'd really want to keep in a rebuild. So I wouldn't be surprised if they finally just throw throw everything out and say, give us your best offer and teams just throw in chips. Especially in the Western Conference where it's so many different contenders. One team can pick up Pascal Siakam and go from being a six seed to a top two seed like that. Yeah. So who knows? That's a really good point. Uh, we'll stick with you, Tom, and we can talk about the Heat because I think they're another team that's probably going to have to improve via trade. They don't have a lot of assets, and that line for this year is set at 44.5, which I think is a great line. Where are you going with this one? Yeah, this is this is probably one of the harder teams to predict, especially because you, you, you've seen what they've done in the postseason, and I feel like everyone kind of just carries that over to the regular season the following year, when in reality, the Heat's never really been a good regular season, except for the season uh, two years ago when they did uh, finish as the one seed. But look, they've got Butler, Bam, Hero, Caleb Martin. And then after that, you know, it's an old Kevin Love, an old Kyle Lowry, Duncan Robinson, who's either going to go six of eight from three or one of seven from three. And then, you know, they got Jamie... uh, I'm a Harkes Jr. Harkes Jr. Put some respect on his name. Four-year vet out of college, yeah. I, I like him, but I, I, maybe he's going to make an instant impact. And then They know, like him in Miami. They, they're reporting the last week or two is they really like him, so you never know. They really like him until the next star requests a trade, then, they, then they're happy to pack his bags for him. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. And then, look, Thomas Bryant's all right. I, I, I don't think he's going to do too much in, you know, whether or not Victor Wembenyama has just stolen his soul or not. We'll see. Yeah. Um, but look, the players who have left, I mean, Gabe Vincent, Oladipo, and Struis, I mean, on paper, not huge names. But, you know, outside of Oladipo, those other two had a huge impact in the playoffs. And Oladipo gave them great minutes during the regular season last year before he injured himself. So their depth is really questionable. Um, how many games is Jimmy going to play? I mean, since joining the Heat, he's only played 58, 52, 57, and 64 games during the regular season. You know, we know what he brings in the playoffs, but is he really going to, give us that effort in the regular season. I don't think so. Is Bam going to take another leap on offense? I mean, he wasn't as afraid to take shots. He was more than happy to go to the line. I expect his mid-range game to get a bit better, but I think he's going to have to really up his offensive game in order to, you know, this this team to hit that win mark. Um, And look, their backup fives are going to be Thomas Bryant and Kevin Love, which, you know, all right, but they're not great. Um, and how's Hero going to feel? I mean, he was right. on the training block. Everyone knew that. You know, the team made the finals without him. It's it's not like he went, he got injured and it was everything fell to pieces. They, they made it without him. So they were more than happy to get rid of him. And most players in this scenario either sink or swim. And look, I have a feeling like he will bounce back and can continue to improve. Whether he gets back to that role he had off the bench where he starred in it, we'll see. 
But don't be shocked if he sort of comes into the season, he's a bit slow to start. Um, and look, how much will not training for Dame hurt them? I mean, everyone expected they'd make that deal, including me. And with the Bucks swooping in, the Heat are now short because they weren't prepared to not have him on this roster at some stage during the year. Um, so look, overall, I have them going under that 44.5 wins just simply because I don't think they have depth. And they are one injury away from a key player from being really shorthanded and going from a potential finals team to really a play-in team. So look, I have full faith that they will be a pain in the playoffs, assuming they make it, and they will make life hell for whoever they face. The Celtics. Yeah, literally, it will probably happen. I mean, Yuri and I can both, you know, we'll both be celebrating if they don't make the playoffs, that's for sure. (laughs) But at the moment, they're not a regular season team, and I have them hitting that under. Yeah, Yuri, this is the toughest one we're talking about today for me. I think this is bang on 44 and a half, which is... To hit the over, you've got to win four games more than 500. I think I'm with Tom, one single injury in over an 82-game season. It probably pushes me to take the under in a pinch, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I have to completely agree with both of you there too, Alex and Tom. It's hard enough to predict with Miami in terms of the regular season and them getting off to slow starts and sort of treading water at 500. Then it's always the back end of the regular season where – it's up for grabs, right? And they tend to just flick the switch and win eight of, say, eight of their last 10 regular season games and get to a 43 or 39 record, 44, 38 record or 45, 37 record. So they sort of pace it along the way and it's sort of a little bit laissez-faire at that point. But then when it comes to crunch time and when you need to net wins, especially when there's only a half-game gap, save seventh or eighth now of the playing tournament situation now, or ninth and tenth, and they're able to do that. So I think the other part to it as well is that there are some tricky stages during the season, I think, with Miami's schedule, especially those Western trips as well. They're, they're the hardest ones, the West Coast trips, when, especially when you go play the Lakers, Clippers, Kings, Warriors, depending on what the itinerary is for them. They're always hard, and especially against the Western Conference 30 times. And if you can at least win, say, 18 or 19 of those games, or the 30 against the West, then you're going to at least win 45, 46 games at most. That's the biggest part, I think, for Miami is trying to bank wins against the Western Conference teams if they to get over that mark. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit of a betting man, and this is a line I would stay away from completely because it's probably pretty close to where it ended up. Um, moving on to a line that I'm definitely going to take, Yuri, the Minnesota Timberwolves, 44 and a half is their predicted over under. Um, I'm going to tell you, I'm smashing the over on that one. I don't know what your thoughts are, but walk us through uh, where you see the Timberwolves going this year. I see them actually propelling up more than 44 and a half. I think last season, Alex, there was a win loss projection on them. They were expected to win 48 games last season, of course. I looked that up while you're talking. Yeah, Carl Anthony Towers missed basically essentially four months and 51 games with that nasty torn ball. Achilles, if you want to call it that way, against Washington in November 28th. And I think the synergy partnership as well of him and Rudy Gobert definitely took a lot of time, and that was understandable anyway, especially with Towns having to switch from playing centre to power forward and, of course, add another array of injuries. And I think just inconsistent patches really hurt them too. We spoke about a long time ago on the podcast, Alex, where they were five games under 500 after that really well, embarrassing loss to Detroit Pistons on New Year's Eve. And Chris Finch didn't take too kindly to the team's habits as well. And he was pretty stringent on benching players if they weren't going to play up to team standard. And 
they ultimately sort of hit that switch right late in the regular season. I think there's a few games there that really cost them, though. I think they lost to the Phoenix Suns on March 29, I think. Yeah, there's that late March game, and fouls really hurt them. And turnovers, should I say? It wasn't the fouls, it was the turnovers. They had about 20 turnovers that game, and it just ultimately costed them in the end. And you thought if they win those games late down the stretch as well, they could finish as the number six seed and therefore having to avoid playing in the playing tournament. But I think having another year of Townsend Gobert, having a healthy McDaniels back in the team as well, Jaden McDaniels, having a healthy Nas Reid back in the side. The biggest conundrum, I think, for Minnesota is what happens when Gobert or Towns goes to the bench and Reid comes on and how do they sort of alternate that sort of pairing. So whether Nas plays a power forward, Rudy at five, and when Rudy comes off with Nas and Towns and whether they switch Nas to power forward, Towns back to centre, there's a whole lot of sort of shuffling about, I think, with the team as well, Alex. And we've seen probably, what, 2017-18 with the side, they should have won 50 or more games if Jimmy Butler doesn't do his, hurts his knee against Houston. I think the first game after the All-Star break, they were well on track to finish. I think the top three in the Western Conference that year. And the last time they won 50 or more games was back to, well, 2003-2004, Kevin Garnett's MVP year when he had San Cassell and Latrell Sprewell on the team, won 58 games, which is a franchise record. Don't see them, of course, getting the 58 wins. But if they get to 48-49 wins this season, Alex, I think that's a really good result as well because they've got the rosters right there too. They've got the whole defensive tools at their arsenal the biggest i think sort of puzzling question for mine and maybe you you might agree or disagree with this one too was jalen noel i actually i was i was i was looking right at the lineup so i'll give you a couple stats and then we can pick up on jaden noel um the minnesota timberwolves predicted to win 49 and a half wins last year ended up with 42 so line this year is 44 and a half they ran some small ball stuff last year in patches with nas reed so I've just looked up their um, most successful five-man combinations during the regular season. Not a lot of minutes here, so massive, massive disclaimer. So their two most successful lineups on a points per game over the opponent, which is huge, 37.8 points per 100 possessions more than their opponent in very limited minutes. So in 26 minutes for the first lineup, 31 for the second, is Anthony Edwards, either Jaden McDaniels or Jordan McLaughlin. I think I, he's not Jordan McLaughlin. Um, Noel, Torian Prince, and Nas Reed. So the small ball with Nas Reed at the center with um, shooters around him were scorching guys in extremely limited minutes. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see that more, um, particularly as it is a really interesting one because I think it's this is a team that we can all look at and go, oh, you've got some roster construction issues. But Anthony Edwards is that good where he's kind of making it work. Rudy Gobert is that good defensively. He can kind of be a one-man defense. Carl Anthony Towns is the best big man shooter of all time to a lot of people. So there is enough here if you think that the chemistry is starting to click where the pieces are rounded with McDaniels. Um, no Rivers this year, but Nas Reed is still there. They did lose Noel, though. Is that where you were going to go? Oh, absolutely, Alex. And that was a big loss. And, of course, he had his injuries, and it really hurt them too. And I think... Getting Shake Milton across from the 76ers is probably the counter for that too, to add that extra scoring punch off the bench. And I think we, I think for Shake himself as well, not getting those opportunities later down the stretch with the 76ers was a bit of a, yeah, really hurt him in a way too. And I think getting this, you know, being in a new environment as well and them having that balance, not just with the starting five, but with the bench as well. When you have Carl Anderson, who's basically going to play point four for them 
at different times. He's going to handle the ball in the half court. And they've got all these different options as well. And I think they also very similar in, in the way to a lot of other teams too is that three-point shooting. They take a volume of threes. I think they'll – I'm pretty sure they weren't number one last season for three-point attempts as well. I think they had about 42 or 43 I might last have season. That's, that's that up right in front of me. I was preparing. Might have been 41. Yeah. It was definitely 40 or more, pretty sure. Can't be that important if I don't have it in front no. of me. Um, Tom, interested in your thoughts. I'm taking the over. I think Yuri's taking the over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a hard one because 44 and a half is just that really awkward line. That's why the betting companies like setting it there. I think I'll go over, but for me, this is a stay away just because we don't know how Gobert and Towns are going to gel. I mean, we've hardly got to see it last year. Uh, Conley's 36 and he's going to be the one who has to run the offense. And Edwards really needs to take a leap like it's rare you see players take a, a seismic leap to the point where the Timberwolves are going to go from where they were last year to, you know, a 46-win, 45-win sort of team. I think the Western Conference is, might be a bit too tough for them to get a, a top four-ish seed, but at the same time, I can see them definitely hitting me over here. But again, I, I'd stay away from this one personally. Interesting. Uh, all right, our last team we're going to look at is the Memphis Grizzlies, who I think are super interesting for a number of reasons. The over-under this year is set at 45 and a half. They won 51 games last year. Now, I'm 95% sure that this next stat I'm going to give you is correct. Uh, it's from Recall on a show I was on last week. The Grizzlies are 31 and 15 over the last two seasons without Ja Morant through injury or suspension. So this is a team two seasons ago were quite good, and then last season without him, um, above 500, but not by as much. This might be the year Desmond Bain breaks out, I think, in the minds of casual NBA fans. Last year, his third year in the NBA, 21 points a game, 40% from three. Um, he's a stud and he also has the best biceps in the league. So I just, I want to see him out there. Uh, he's also good to score in your multis, 20 points every single game. Uh, they've upgraded from Dylan the Villain to Marcus Smart. Defensive player of the year, Jaron Jackson Jr. Steven Adams is great. It, I mean, Derek Rose is on the side for some bench minutes. I can't see how they don't win 45 games or 46 it would have to be even with Moran missing 25 games. I think this is a team come the end of the season, we might be looking at as a two seed in the West going, this is a group of really young guys who are just clicking because they they can do some things on this team that nobody else can do. I mean, Desmond Bain, it's a massive call, particularly in the West, but I think he'll get some all-star buzz. There'll be no one else in that team scoring any points and they'll be up there. John Moran is the most explosive player in the league. Jaron Jackson Jr., if he could stay out of foul trouble, would pick up six blocks a game. So there's guys on this team who can do things that nobody else can do. I can't see a world, unless Morant comes back and misses 80 games through maturity issues, this might be the polite way of saying that, that they don't win 46 games. I'm opening the floor to discussion. I'd be happy to be wrong. Um, As long as Desmond Bain makes the all-star, I'd be happy to be wrong. But I think this is a really interesting team with a lot of young talent. I've definitely seen him winning more than 46 games, Alex, and I think the last couple of seasons has proven that too. 51 wins, as you mentioned, the year before they win. I think it was 53 in 2021-2022 and, of course, reached the Western Conference semifinals. And I think as well, of course, those upgrades in the defensive side are going to really help a lot because they're already offensively sound as it is. 
And I think defensively, where it fits into that grit and grind culture, which Zach Randolph and Tony Allen and Marcus Sol and Mike Conley established, right? And it's sort of there's that real sort of ruggedness. And when you add Marcus Smart to that, I think it just only emphasizes why they were trying to look to sort of bolster in terms of defensive stocks, and especially in the Western Conference, right? With the guards, we can go through it right now with Steph Curry, Devin Booker, Anthony Edwards, and etc., and all the other likes too, and even Brandon Ingram if they decide if when the Grizzlies and Pelicans match up against each other and they will four times this season because they're both in the same Southwest division that they can play that matchup with Smart on Ingram if that does occur. So that's also another reasoning why, considering how deep the guards are within the Western Conference. And I think too, Brandon Clark, as we spoke last week and his loss as well of the Achilles, that's a major one too, especially coming off the bench and just providing that all-out hustle as well of his rebounds and his sort of second-chance opportunities as well that he tends to snare on the boards. Stephen Adams, though, that's the real major inclusion back into the side right, Alex, and we talked about it too. Was it January 22nd was his last game before he underwent PCL surgery, hurt against the Phoenix Suns, and he was essentially averaging, what, 5.1 offensive rebounds, which is like Ben Wallace, Dennis Rodman-type offensive rebounding numbers, which is... Truly astounding in that form. And that's where he only just adds that because Memphis are an, a scintillating rebounding team, Alex. That's where they really thrive upon. And, of course, Taylor Jenkins has really adjusted many of the magnets for them to really play up-tempo in a way. And that sort of really complements within the whole brand. And I think Derek Rose there too and him getting more minutes as well, which I think is great as well not just for the Chicago Bulls fans which saw D Rose in his early years and the Knicks as well for those seasons here and there too but it'll be really interesting to see like how much of a contribution he can really have and make his imprint on um final thoughts on the Grizzlies 45 and a half wins I think I'd go over on that one just because uh I I do think they are still a good team even without Morant and we've seen that in the past two years just my two cents on Marcus Smart, though, is my biggest concern. My biggest concern is it did take him a long time to sort of take a bit of a backseat to Tatum and Brown, sort of on the offensive end at least, to sort of hand the keys over to them. My biggest concern is he's going to walk into this team of fairly young guys, sort of pump his chest out and go, I'm the guy now, Morant's not going to be here, and he's going to take too many shots on the offensive end, and he's going to look to get his own. And don't get me wrong, there are some games where you'll see Marcus Smart has like 30 points, and he's shot five. He's, he's five from like 11 from three, and you're like, he's actually... Decent on offense. But then there's other games where he's one for nine and he's just hurting your team and he's taking bad shots and he's just making badder, you know, shot selections across the board. And the underrated thing is he wasn't that good at def- on the defensive end last year. He, he was still better than most because he's a defensive player of the year and he's one of the best defenders in the league, but he definitely wasn't up to that same level. And we saw that in game one against Philly when Harden absolutely torched us. He did nothing. And that's kind of what you think. You kind of think that would be the matchup, but he did nothing. And then uh, in the round against the Heat, you know, what got them going was their three-point shooting perimeter defense, uh, perimeter shooting. And where was Marcus Smart's perimeter defense? So whether or not he can do that on this Memphis team, we'll see. But again, I think they're too deep. They're too good. Like I would definitely be hitting the over on uh, 45 and a half. My only thoughts on Smart before we wrap up is that might be like a one plus one equals three situation with defense there because he's got Jaron Jackson Jr. behind him and he's got Desmond Bain, who's sort of strong for how small he is. There might be a bit more they can bring from that cache of defense. Um, just 
I can see that being grit and grind grizzlies kind of almost again. Um, all right, time to wrap up. Uh, I haven't asked you to prep on this at all, guys. Have you watched any NBL this year? Because I watched uh, last night the Sydney Kings versus the Brisbane Bullets. Pretty fun game. Uh, that's it. That's all I wanted to say is the NBL has been pretty high quality so far. Uh, ben from the Mojo Sports Network does an NBL recap on our Twitter um, after most games, I think. So if you're interested, Mojo Sports Network on Twitter as well. But um, Yuri, I think you might even be writing about NBL. So 15 seconds to end the show on the NBL for you. Oh, yes, Alex. So doing some writing for the In the Sanctum on the NBL, just recaps as well and sort of talking points from the round. And, no, it's been great fun this season. I think every year since, well, the late 2010s has just gone better and better to basically a point, right, where it's back to those levels of sort of euphoria and the halcyon days in the 1990s when the NBL was really strong in a way too and the depth amongst all teams was right down from top down to bottom exceptional and that's the same thing this season. I think as well it's going to be extremely close, especially the 28 games and trying to figure out sort of the ladder positions but also percentage is going to play a major part too in which teams actually do get into the plane and which teams, of course, get the top two and get that week off. But it's been really riveting viewing thus far. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, – Tom, I think you shook your head. You haven't watched any NBL games. I don't blame you, but uh, go ahead. All, all, all I saw was Aaron Baines and his coach fighting and, you know, that's that's about it. It just it just, it just just brought me back happy memories to that 2018 Celtics playoff run when Baines was, was just going in and beat. So that that's all that's all I can remember. At least you didn't bring up Paul Pierce tonight. It's uh, just a throwback Aaron Baines reference. All right, we'll leave it there, guys. Thanks for joining me. Uh, if you're still listening, consider leaving a five-star rating for the Mojo Sports Network. Uh, we'll, ba- we'll be back next week. I think we've got a special episode because it'll be the last episode before the NBA season is back. Uh, but as always, Tom, Yuri, thank you very much for joining me. Cheers, Alex. Thanks, Alex.